Hey guys, it's Joel here, the digital pastor at Soul Revival Church, and I wanted to get online to let you know that Week Away is coming up, and we are super excited about it because it is one of the best times of year for, that we get together as a church. Go down the south coast and spend lots of time with each other and hear some Bible talks and just spend time fellowshipping with each other. It's a fantastic time. I can't recommend it enough and the most exciting thing is the week away registration dates are coming up this monday 8th of may is for week-long registrations that opens at nine o'clock on that day and then the following week 15th of may is for short stay registrations so check that out the link is in the newsletter and to get you even more fired up about it we're going to release the talks from last year's week away they were done by peter haywood so check out those in the next couple of weeks you can hear them right now and also, just to get you a little bit fired up, we've got Mike Dicker coming this year, the principal of YouthWorks, to do the talks on Revelation. So we're really excited about that. Enjoy these talks. Get ready for Week Away. Make sure you register, whether it's the short stay or the long stay. 8th of May for, for long stays. 15th of May for short stays. We can't wait to see you one way. Two readings this morning. The first one is from Luke chapter 9 starting at verse 57, and then we'll skip over to Luke chapter 14, but I'll give you that verse when we come to it. So Luke 9, 57. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He said to another man, follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plough and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Now skipping over to chapter 14, we're gonna read verse 25 to 35. I'll give you a moment to find it if you've got your own Bible there. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able, with 10,000 men, to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have 
cannot be my disciples. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure heap. It is thrown out. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. I'll pray. Heavenly Father, we pray for ourselves as we come to look at your word. May we have insight into what you have to say about what we perceive about the Lord Jesus and give us a capacity as we hear to reflect upon our lives, our circumstances, that we might be those who do follow the Lord Jesus with all we have. Help us, we pray now in Jesus' name. Amen. I was telling the story before that a significant moment for myself was when I was being confirmed and people had to make a decision whether to come back and I thought I'd be committed. Uh, the next part of that story was about, oh, four or five weeks later, I was going to Bombardier High School. Um, there's a lot of high school stories here, so those formative periods. Public high school, I didn't know what sort of high school it was. It was a high school back in the days, they only had one choice school I went to. Anyway, there was a lunchtime Christian group uh, in the music um, uh, classroom in A Block. And I had made the decision that now that I'm a serious Christian, I need to go to this lunchtime group. So I made the decision uh, that I would go there. When I went into A Block, I realised there were a group of boys who had gathered down the stairs. You had to go up the stairs to the top section where the music class was. And their task was to wail in and punch anyone who walked past them going to the Christian group. And so I had this moment of, am I serious enough to put up with the, the beating that I will get to go to the top of the classroom? Or not? Am I willing to pay the costs to be a Christian in these circumstances, or will I wimp out? And of course, guess what? I went the other way. And it was this moment of crushing defeat. I, I, I suddenly felt like, I'm really not a Christian. I can't face the cost of this. Looking back, it's all ridiculous, but as a 14-year-old, it was very big deal. Like, the idea that you can't face the music and you can't face the cost, I just whipped out. And this whole idea of what the cost of being a Christian is was a sort of a matter that became part of the way I thought about it. You know, would you stand out? Would you be willing to sort of look different than other people? Would you be willing to be able to sort of somehow identify with Jesus in a way that people could look at and look at differently? So I want to look at that this morning, uh, as we follow Jesus, about the cost of what it is to be a follower of Jesus, the cost of what it means to be disciple. And uh, we'll look at what Jesus had to say. You notice those bulb readings both picked up that theme very early on. So when we picked up the story, remember, remember from last night of you with us, we're starting on the journey from 951, where Jesus said that time approached for him to take up heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. So we're going to follow him as he makes his way to Jerusalem, the city of his destiny, the city he's going to die. And he's going to help the disciples understand what it is to be a follower of him 
as he teaches them on the way to Jerusalem. He's going to make sure they understand the two passages we look at today is going to pick up this question of what it means now if you follow him and the cost that's involved in being with him. And it starts very quickly. So he turns and starts to be on the road to Jerusalem in 951. And the very first thing that really happens, the little interlude about the Samaritans in 52 to 56, in verse 57, the question of what the cost to be a follower of Jesus comes to the forefront. And three times, so so as they're walking along the road in verse 57, as they're walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. That's a big sort of commitment. Jesus, I'm all in. I don't care where you go, I'm going to be with you. And of course, the to and fro starts to tease out, well, have you really thought what's involved in this? Anyone can make a claim, but have you really taken to heart what the consequences will be like? And we'll work that out. And so what he's going to say, the road ahead might be a bit hard. It won't be all straightforward. And he's going to be very upfront that you're following him on a road that's going to take him to a cross. It's going to be a road that takes him to a death. And he wants to make sure if you're going to follow me that way, you've got to make sure you're aware what the consequences of that will look like for yourself. You need to count the cost before you commit. So don't give me, I'm all in with you. Have a moment before you do so to understand what that will look like. And so whatever the journey is like, he wants to say, it will be okay because we've got Jesus with us, but don't take it in a light-hearted way. So he does this, he wants to make sure there's nothing to hide. There's not going to be a switch and bait. You know the whole thing? Come with me and then halfway down the road, oh, by the way, I forgot to tell you. This is right up front. This is right at the start. And he's saying, if you're going to come with me, don't think it's all going to be fun and games. It's not going to be sitting around the campfire singing songs. Sorry. (laughs) I want to say about that, that because I I think there is times where there's enormous fun and we have lots of laughs together and that's an enjoyable part of it. But if you're going to follow Jesus... Think more seriously about what's involved here, please. Because it's not always like that, is it? And you know it's not always like that. And he's upfront about that. And so the, the invitation to follow is going to challenge all the existing, existing allegiances we might have. Is going to ask us all our values to be challenged. Everything's going to be up for grabs. And it's going to ask you to live a life where seemingly so much of what we're asked to be committed to may be out of step with what people think is normal, what people think is the standard way. It is sort of a jarring disconnect that comes with Jesus and following him that he wants to make sure that we understand so we don't get surprised what it looks like. And so he wants his himself and his kingdom... <coughs> to be everything. He doesn't want caveats. He doesn't want quibbling. He doesn't want excuses. He wants to make sure that himself and the kingdom he's leading just dominates our lives completely. 
so that it fills our life now and it fills our horizons in the future where Jesus' and his kingdom is everything we have. Now, when you start to put in those terms, everything else is pushed aside, you can see, well, that's a big claim, isn't it? That's a lot of things. Suddenly, everything goes, and all you've got is Jesus and his kingdom. And so he wants single-minded devotion. You cannot follow Jesus as I used to follow the sharks. I was of interest. I get reminded they have a game every week, and it's my time to click into gear. <clears throat> but following Jesus is not like that. Oh, it's Sunday. It's time to kick my life into gear. Today's the day. It's game day. No, that's not the way it's meant to be. It's everything. Devotion to Jesus in a complicated world is what he wants. And we have multiple responsibilities. And he said, it still involves everything you have. In the midst of sadness, disappointments and grief, in the midst of happiness, business, distraction, he's still everything that we have. And he knows that our lives are full of all stuff. And he said, yes, but I still live number one. And it's neither radical or fanatical. It's simply because Jesus is who he is. It's who he is that's why he wants this. There's no other person could have this expectation. It's only when the greatness and supremacy of Jesus controls our hearts and minds is that like this. <clears throat> Another way of putting it, I've noticed oh, some adults, but a lot of the kids have got oodies. You've seen the oodies around here? Jesus is never your oodie. You know that moment where, oh, I just want someone to wrap around me so I feel really secure and good. And you go to the closet and you get Jesus out. It's your moment, Jesus. Come along. Wrap around me. I need you now. It's not just the Udi to get out when things are going a little bit cold and stale and horrible. Everything about him is meant to be controlling. And I say, in any other word, any other person, this is either dangerous or delusional. It really is. Anyone who makes these claims is dangerous or delusional, but in Jesus, we have someone we have confidence with. And so he's absolutely worth listening to and following. So we come to this little section, first of all, in chapter 9, end of chapter 9. And three times here, he asks people about what it is to follow him. And later on in chapter 40, he talks to them as disciples. The cost of following, cost of disciples. One of the things we have to keep on wrestling, what's the difference between a follower and a disciple? And we have to say here, a follower could not be, maybe he's not a disciple. A follower, is, a disciple is a follower, but also a learner. So the people say, you're going to follow me, don't realise there's a cost of that, but the disciple is someone who follows, but also is committed to Jesus and his ways. And he wants to make sure that we realise when we come to him, he's not a teacher and we're his students. And what by that, sometimes I think we've got a confusion that some people have a view of the Christian life is how much you study <coughs> that matters. The more you study, the more Christian you will be. There's nothing wrong with learning. I'm very committed to make sure that we learn about Jesus. But being a teacher and a student is not the definition of what a Christian is. It's receiving Jesus as a person is what matters. You're following him 
So as a student, I graduate. And there's no graduation with Jesus. After 50 years, I'm still but a learner. I'm still learning Jesus in all sorts of ways that still affect my life. If you talk to any of the senior saints who have been travelling with Jesus for a long time, all of them will say, I'm still learning. As a student, I can feel like I've mastered the subject. Well, you never master Jesus. He's your master. So if you're going to follow him, love of Jesus and his kingdom has got to be it. And if we're going to say that, we've got to make sure we affirm that truth. Love of Jesus and the kingdom is what we have to commit to. But then we need to defend that truth. And so we're going to find here, we're going to defend the truth by affirming following Jesus and his kingdom. But then looking at what that means down here by defending the truth. And this is where these sections come in. And he sharpens what it means by exclusion. So first of all, in verse 57, as they were walking along the road, a man said to him, unnamed, not who it was, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus enigmatically says, foxes have, uh, excuse me for that. Uh, foxes have hole, uh, have dens and birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. <coughs> um, What's he saying here? Well, basically saying, if you're following me, you need to realise I have no home. I have no place by which I can fall back upon. As you follow me, it's sort of an existence where there's nothing reliable except for me, myself. And he says, by contrast, God himself provides something reliable for the animals of the world. They also have their provisions by God, but God's own Son, the Son of Man, God does not provide anything reliable for, because God's own Son has God Himself, and if you follow me, you have me, myself. So the argument here is not against home ownership, as if you're going to follow Him, you have to give up your homes. If that was the case, many of you are in trouble. If you can take God's word seriously. Now, it's not an argument against home ownership. Because it was clearly Jesus went from town to town. What's the first place he often went to? The synagogue. And then he went to someone's home and enjoyed their hospitality. And more than that, we know the first 300 years of the Christian movement, it was a really a house-to-house movement. They had no public places. They just met in people's houses. So it's not against home ownership. But what does a home represent? It's something close to our heart. It's a place you have and you own which defines where you're secure. So as we're walking with Jesus, he'll come back to this theme again and again. We'll come up in our fourth talk. The danger of possessions or wealth or money or other things that will define who we are. And it's a way of thinking about this way. Have you ever walked along and been in stage life? If only I had and fill in the blank, all would be okay. If I only had a better house. If only I had more money. If only I had fill in the blank. Then all would be okay if I only had. And the reason I know we're tempted this way, the whole of society is geared to keep on encouraging us to be those people. If only I have these things, 
My life would be as I want. And he says, well, the Son of Man has no home. So if you follow Jesus, it means you will trust in nothing but in Jesus himself. Now, he doesn't say that, does he? He doesn't say, you follow me, just trust me. He explains it by, as I say, negation. And so what he's really, is arguing about what we call aspirations. We have aspirations of what we could have in our lives. And so if you're going to follow him, aspirational living goes. Aspirations take a second stand. doesn't mean you don't pursue things, but they don't matter as much as Jesus himself. I keep on saying the obvious, but we kind of hear it a hundred different ways because we keep on inverting the thing, isn't it? Other things will dominate. And Jesus said, no, I dominate. You have me and that's enough. And so you follow Jesus because of who he is as a person. So the first point is you don't follow the things that have cares of life. You follow Jesus himself. The second point in this verse 59 through 62 of 9 is where he redefines the allegiances of life, redefine the allegiances of life. The two sayings which are related, I'll read them out. Uh, verse 59, he said to another man, follow me. But he replied, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. A reasonable request. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. A reasonable request. And Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plough and looks back is fit for the service in the kingdom of God. You don't have time to go and even say goodbye to your family. The invitation to follow him and be a disciple and proclaim the kingdom of God so changes everything that the family connections that we have in our life are redefined. Bearing a family member, surely that is reasonable. Saying goodbye to the family, surely that is reasonable. Yet Jesus says, no, that is not now. And just in case you thought he was having a bad day at that point, that's why we had the chapter 14 bit. Did you notice what he said here? Everyone listen carefully. 14.25, the second Bible reading. Large crowds were travelling with Jesus and turning to them, he said, Great, good on you guys. Look to have a good... The more we have, the mirror it is. That's not Jesus' way. So what does he say to the large crowds? If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife, and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Did you hear that gut-wrenching little kick? If anyone comes to me and does not hate father, mother, wife, and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Over the years, I've met uh, many a mother who edited that out of their Bibles. I don't like that part of the Bible. Now, this is, I want to say, it is an extraordinary thing to say, isn't it? By any means, extraordinary. You don't have time to bury people. You don't have time to say goodbye to people. In fact, I want you to hate those that are closest to you. So what's he getting at? 
And we want to say, surely he's saying things over the top, the type of bomb. Well, first of all, saying the dead burying the dead. Well, what's Jesus come to do? He's come to defeat death. Death is going to have a different hold on people's lives and we play that out. What about saying goodbye to people, the family? You might remember the story of Elisha. He was chosen to replace Elijah and he said to Elijah, before I follow you, can I please go and say goodbye to my family? And that time Elijah said, yep, off you go. So why is it different now? Because this is the time of fulfilment. This is a time where the supreme last prophets arrived. The different times have come. And those times where you can say goodbye to your family are no longer applicable because of the urgency and importance of what's playing out. And you can start to see why the kingdom of God overturns so much. On a very superficial reading, I could explain what Jesus says this way. Remember earlier on he said you need to love your enemies? You can read the Bible this way. Love your enemies, hate your family. Come and follow me. And you go, well, come on. Can't be like that. But again, hear it this way. The coming of Jesus and his kingdom clearly reorganized all the normal allegiances. It changes all the relationships that we have, and especially the relationships of those who are close to us. Now, if I can look at this group, I don't know anyone very well. Some of you probably have circumstances where it's not too much of a stretch to feel like you hate your family, if I can put it really badly. That is, you've come up in a circumstance where relationships have been horrendous and family life has been very fraught and there's not much love there at all. And you can say, I get a sense why that might be. But I want to say the particular family relationships Jesus has in mind here are the close ones, the strong-knit ones. The strongly bound family life is the ones he's really speaking about here. It is the normal family relational obligations that get overturned in relationship to the kingdom of God. You know the ones? Don't break with family tradition. Don't break with our culture. Don't break with the family culture. You are part of something that's more important. So you need to take a step back. The things that can pull the followers and potential followers are often the very good things of life. Hear that? The things that can really sidetrack the followers are the good things of life. It's a house. It's the family. It's a job. Now, there's a place for all the other things that can take us away. But here he has in mind what we're going to classify the really all good things. But he's coming on and saying, my allegiance to me changes even your allegiance to the good things of this world. Now, they've kept the transcripts uh, from the 9-11 folk who made phone calls and text messages after the events of 9-11 in America. And um, on the planes and the Twin Towers. And they've kept a record of all of that. 
And all of them, every single one of them, no one makes this phone call, oh, I'm concerned about my stock options. Could you make sure my portfolio is well looked after as I'm going down? Of course you know what every single phone call was about, wasn't it? What do you think it was about? I love you. I'm going to miss you. And they took a CNN poll about three months afterwards and there was a noticeable change in the mood of American society. There was a distinct drop in the number of divorces for a while. The importance of relationships suddenly comes to the forefront. Of course it didn't last. You may ask why it didn't last, but it didn't. But we know instinctively what really is at the heart. When push comes to shove, where we go to. And the point here is that though we might find close relationships, family and our culture, our social standing, are difficult, infuriating and frustrating, they are so close to the centre of who we are that they almost easily take over. We just instinctively want to fit in. We want to belong. We want to feel like our identity is bound with others that gives us something. And Jesus comes along and said, I'm stepping into that. Hear that? Jesus says, I'm stepping into that. I'm redefining your identity. I'm redefining what you belong to. I'm redefining where you fit in. In our heads, and we nod our heads and say, yes, that makes sense. The love of Jesus is so big, so all-encompassing and so compelling that everything else changes. We hear it, but then we're still challenged by it. First time ever I came across this in a very startling way. I was at university and I got to know a Muslim Malaysian student and I was inviting him to an evangelistic talk. And I thought I knew him well and I invited him to come to this Christian talk and I'll never remember, forget, the sheer terror in his eyes with the idea that he'd come to this particular talk. When he left Malaysia to come to Australia, he was given this warning. If you become a Christian, we will disown you and you will be dead to us and never be allowed back. So here I am stumbling into the unknown cultural world and the sheer terror, the idea that he might have to turn me down, the sheer terror of the implications for losing his family if we become a Christian was something I had no idea about. I've learnt more since then. But the same for all of us. The same thing. So another way of looking at this is that how the best way to identify yourself. It's not about who you belong to or who thinks you're good. It's that which Jesus says about yourself. Your identity and security is bound up with him. Doesn't mean, by the way, you stop being part of your family. Doesn't mean you don't have responsibilities with your family. Doesn't mean you don't love your wife or your children or other things like that. But the significance of Jesus is that he is at the centre. And I could just say that, Jesus at the centre, and it doesn't feel the weight of it until you have the examples he has here and you see the significance and the impact of that and why he says, by the way, you want to follow me, count the cost. 
Cantopos. And so we're asking, what is your greatest treasure? Who matters more than anything else? And Jesus is saying, I'm sufficient for you. Everything I have for you will be sufficient for the journey. And I will provide for you all the way through. The future with Jesus is always good. And he finishes in verse 62. He says, those who put a hand to the plough and looks back is not fit for service. And so but once you commit, you keep going forward. You don't say, as Israel, after they left the wilderness, said, God, oh, it would have been better if we were back there in Egypt. Once we commit to him and follow him and our allegiance to him, we keep moving forward because that is the way we're heading. We don't keep on having second guess, oh, it would have been easier back there. And we follow him all the way. And that's what it means we carry our cross all the way through to the end. So following Jesus may not always be easy, and the road might not always be clear, but we follow a leader who's committed to us. And we say, how much is he committed to us? He's so committed to us, he's going to die for us, and we follow him on the road to the cross, and that's why he says, take up your cross and follow me. And if you have Jesus, it's sufficient for your journey all the way through. And we cry, God, as a challenge to all of us, we say this to ourselves, God, I know that I'll be satisfied if you would give me the right job. God, I'll be satisfied if you just give me the right friends. God, I'll be satisfied if you just give me the right bank balance. God, I'll be satisfied if you just fix up my parents. God, I'll be satisfied if you just fix up my children. God, I'll be satisfied if you just fix up my marriage. God, I'll be satisfied if you just fix up my health. God, I'll be satisfied if you just give me ease and comfort. God, I'll be satisfied if you just make things different so I don't stand out. And Jesus says, if you have me, you have all the satisfactions required for the trip. He doesn't have all the answers but it's sufficient for us. So my challenge to you, follow him. There's nothing more wonderful, nothing more secure. The greatest treasure in life you'll have is found in him, and he will commit to you and keep you going all the way to the end. So as you come here on this lovely Saturday morning, be realistic and count the cost but only do so because you have a grasp of the greatness and supremacy of Jesus who asked you to be satisfied with him and all that he has. Your allegiances, your cares, he will look after. I commit that to you in Jesus' name. Amen.